Thank you, Diana. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I serve as the lead pastor here at Midtown. So glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, if you're new, especially as a guest, welcome. Uh, would love to chat with you. Love to meet you. Uh, if you see anybody with a lanyard around this morning, you know their uh, staff and would love to uh, help you in any way that we can. Uh, if you're um, just joining us, or maybe it's been a couple weeks, you've been at uh, weddings or traveling to Europe, I, I don't know, whatever you guys are doing in like September and October, uh, we are wrapping up a series that we started earlier this year in the book of Exodus. So we're kind of winding down in our study of the book of Exodus. In the last 16 chapters, uh, it's really 13, three of those get kind of interrupted with this uh, incident called the golden calf. But the last 16 chapters of the book of Exodus, uh, Moses, the author of the Torah, the first five books of the the Bible, um, talks about uh, the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, which again, you know, if you're not in construction, if you're not like a math person, uh, you may just get lost in this kind of the part of the book that you tend to skip. Uh, but <clears throat> it's really significant, this section here. And so I want to I again remind you, in case you missed it last week, why it's important to kind of zero in on the tabernacle and why Moses spends 13 chapters, which if you look at the overall, it's 40 chapters of the book of Exodus. This is roughly a third of the narrative. So anytime you see an author in the Bible spend a third of their time on something, just from a literary standpoint, it should be a big blinking light saying, hey, pay attention. And so why would Moses spend, I mean, this book is filled with these great themes that I think especially as modern people we love, right? Liberation from slavery and oppression. We see great supernatural intervention uh, on behalf of the people of God. God rescues a people out of slavery and, and delivers them into freedom, right? Not just a freedom from oppression, but a freedom to worship God and to live as God's new uh, and free people. And so God is establishing that throughout the book of Exodus, but then he spends 13 chapters on essentially the building of a portable tent, right? This is a mobile home. God is building himself a mobile home in the midst of his people. So what is the big deal about the tabernacle? We said if you, if you don't understand the tabernacle, you're going to have a hard time understanding God himself, right? Because the tabernacle is central to understanding the nature of God, It's central to understanding the nature of what it means to be truly human, and it's really critical to understand what it means to be the church or the people of God. So this idea of the tabernacle, the tabernacle is uh, the place in all of ancient Near Eastern culture, right? It wasn't just Israel that had a tabernacle. We see this throughout uh, Babylonian culture. We see this throughout uh, Egyptian culture, throughout different cultures in the ancient Near East. They had tabernacles. They had temples that they would build to the divine. And the tabernacle was a place where heaven and earth overlap. Heaven and earth come together. They collide. The realm of the divine meets the realm of humanity. And in the Bible, uh, in the biblical imagination, the tabernacle represents, we said, God reopening a way into his presence. It's full of uh, Edenic language, like this uh, taking us back to this nostalgia to go back to the Garden of Eden, back to Genesis chapters one and two. And so you see a lot of parallel language between the early chapters of Genesis. So what he's saying is, this is a way back into the presence of God. And we said last week that God's presence drawing near sounds amazing, right? But it's actually terrifying. There's this paradox that's introduced in the building of the tabernacle. Um, We said that God's presence drawing near would feel more like, I mean, God is putting himself right in the center geographically and spiritually of the camp, right? Remember, people were living in tents, and so God puts his tent right in the middle of the community of tents. We said this would be more like 
opening a nuclear power facility in your backyard than it would be like opening a yoga studio. We tend to think of God's presence and God as yoga and meditation and spirituality, but really it is this intense presence of holiness. So it's like opening a nuclear facility in your backyard. On the one hand, nice to have access to electricity. On the other hand, there's radioactive exposure and there's all kinds of dangers and protections that need to be observed if you're going to live close to a nuclear power facility. And so there's this tension in the tabernacle that we'll see really uh, kind of uh, echoed throughout the rest of uh, these 13 chapters. On the one hand, God wants to draw near to his people. On the other hand, so God wants to restore communion. On the other hand, it's impossible to have communion with God without divine protection and intervention, right? And so the tabernacle is going to heighten this paradox that we see that starts when Adam and Eve get expelled from the garden, Remember the cherubim with the flaming swords, you're no longer welcome into the presence of God because you're sinful, because you're unholy. And so there's this, this God is a holy God living amongst an unholy people. And so the tabernacle is going to draw attention to this, and we see it in the construction of the tabernacle, even with multiple layers of protection to protect the people from God's holy, intense presence. But it never fully resolves this tension. So it anticipates the resolution of the paradox and foreshadows its fulfillment, but it never brings it to uh, fulfillment. So with that kind of background again, I want to read, uh, today we're going to be talking about, last week is just kind of an overview of these 13 chapters. This week we're going to begin to dig in a little bit deeper and talk specifically about uh, the establishment of the priesthood. So I'm going to read in, uh, we'll be looking at chapters 28 through 31, don't freak out, not line by line, just kind of an overview here of these chapters. And we're going to start in uh, chapter 27, read a little bit at the end, starting in verse 20 into chapter 28, and then a small section uh, in chapter 29. So hear these words from Moses as he describes the priesthood. You shall command the people of Israel, 2720, that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they, make, may, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And then let's skip on down to chapter 29, verse 44. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. 
I am the Lord, their God. So when we finish reading scripture, typically I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you respond, thanks be to God. So let's try that. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we have here something that I'm sure all of you woke up this morning excited to learn about, the priesthood. Uh, and I'm sure you're wondering, what relevance, if any, does this have for me uh, living right now? I, I, don't, I don't wear these holy vestments. I don't even have any, there's all these stones and metals and, and fabrics. What does this have to do with life uh, in the 21st century? And I would argue a ton. It has a lot to do with your life. And what you see here uh, in, the, in the Bible and in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus specifically, uh, is these patterns that are laid out that then become uh, kind of uh, amplified and echoed throughout the rest of the Bible. And so if you think of uh, this idea, if you turn an hourglass on its side, a friend of mine used this illustration, I thought it was helpful, that the promises of God are like these patterns that if you turn over an hourglass, start out really wide, and then they narrow in as you go along in the Bible. And, and then they, they widen out. So they start really wide. They're given to the people of God, and then they narrow in on Jesus Christ. And then after Jesus, they then widen back out to be applied to the people of God. And that's exactly what you see here with this pattern of the priesthood, right? There's this pattern of a mediator, a priestly mediator that gets applied first to Israel and then ultimately reaches its climax in the person of Jesus and then, and then gets applied to us as the church as the body of Christ. We are the people of God. We are in Christ, right? Which means that we then are an extension of this royal priesthood. And so it starts as a promise. So how do we get here to the priesthood? Or if you remember, this is not the first mention of priests in the Bible. Um, actually, if you go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, uh, Adam and Eve, as God's image-bearing representatives, are given the task of priests. Even the language in Genesis chapter 1 is priestly language. So if you look at uh, what, we, what we often call the cultural mandate, or uh, this Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, right? Rule over the earth, extend Eden out to the ends of the earth. That word fill in Genesis chapter 1, fill the earth, is the word for consecration, it's literally consecrate the earth. The idea of consecration comes from a Hebrew word that means to be filled with, to have your hands full. It's a call for deep engagement, right, in a task or a vocation. And so this idea, even from the beginning, is you are priests and you are to take the presence of God and fill the earth and multiply the presence of God throughout the rest of the world. And then in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are called to tend the garden, right? They're called to tend this holy space, the antechamber of God's presence. And, and he uses, again, very specific language. God tells Adam, I want you to work it, work the ground, and keep it. Those two words are priestly words. You see in Numbers and Leviticus, those two words are used to describe the, the working of and the keeping of the uh, tabernacle and the temple and the priestly duties. So right from the beginning, we see a mention of this idea of priest uh, kind of working and keeping and extending the blessings of Eden throughout the world. Then we come and fast forward to Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus 19, God delivers uh, the people of Israel from 
slavery. And remember, he gives them this, this beautiful, beautiful vision for what it means to be his people. He says, you are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. We spent an entire sermon talking about what that meant for them in that time. He's saying you are no longer a nation of slaves. It's no longer going to be about survival for you. It's no longer going to be about oppression for you. I'm giving you a vision for a new society, a new humanity centered on the presence of God where you now have inherent value and dignity and worth. You are a nation, a kingdom of priests. And we see even in Exodus 19 that people were functioning as priests in that community. However, when God invited them into his presence, remember uh, there later on in that chapter, God began to speak to the people and there was fire and there was like a hurricane and all kinds of crazy storms and earthquakes. God's holiness and his presence was so intense that the people shrank back and they said, hey Moses, why don't you just be like our guy? You, you be that guy that we call to step in and be an intermediary. You know what I'm talking about? Like the guy you call, you know, everybody has a guy when you need something done around the house, when you need tickets to a game, when you need access to a lake house somewhere in Indiana, you have a guy or a gal that you call, right, to get access. And they're kind of saying, okay, Moses, you be the guy. You be the guy that goes up on the mountain and represents us as our mediator. And this is kind of a shift in the narrative. And now uh, in chapters 19 to 24, we see Moses acting as a mediator on behalf of the people. And now the people move from being a kingdom of priests, which was the original promise given to them, to a kingdom with priests, mediating the presence of God. Not a change in destination, but a change in the route to get to the destination. So that all brings us to chapter 28, to the description of and the installation and ordination of the priesthood. Now, what we see here, again, is another paradox. So paradox plays, so tension and, and kind of two things that don't seem like they belong together. God is bringing together in the tabernacle, and we see another paradox introduced here in uh, the priesthood. So the, the tabernacle paradox was God wants to draw near as a, as, as a God who loves his people and desires communion, but the God drawing near was impossible apart from some kind of supernatural divine intervention and protection. Now we see the paradox of the priesthood. And the paradox of the priesthood is this, that there's a beauty and a glory that's described uh, uh, here, what you might call the ideal high priest or the ideal heavenly man that, that the priesthood is kind of pointing towards. And then there's the reality at the same time of the sinfulness and the weakness of the actual priests themselves. So we have this, this ideal priest that's being led, this ideal man of heaven being laid out and represented in the garments, but then we have Aaron and his sons, who we're going to see are very sinful, very weak, very dysfunctional throughout the book of Levitic Leviticus. Um, we have the sinfulness and weakness of the actual priests. So how do sinful, ordinary men uh, over multiple generations enter into the holiness of the priesthood while being sinners. This has massive implications for how we think about our calling, as we'll see in a few minutes, to be a kingdom of priests. That is the commission, the calling, the vocation of the church. And so we tend to focus on, in this passage, Jesus as the fulfillment of the great high priest. 
And, and we're going to talk about that, but I think also you see in here uh, a lot that's relevant, relevant for us as we step into our vocation as a kingdom of priests, right? And so I want to point out both of those things and spend some time thinking about what that means for us. So let's start with chapter 28, the clothing of the priests, right? The priest's clothing or the garments of the priests are introduced to us first. And I would argue that's very significant, that he starts with the garments not with the priests themselves. So we, we see in chapter 29 the consecration and ordination of the priest. We see in chapter 28 the garments come first. Now, for us, uh, clothing and garments, I mean, they're important, but they don't mean the same thing that they meant in the Bible. I know we, some of us spend a lot of time preparing our clothing. Like, you didn't come here and not probably give some thought to what you were wearing this morning, right? Um, but in the Bible, garments are very significant. Right? I want to throw up on the screen here. Yeah, you have this picture of the priestly garments. This is a, this is, if we could like, you know, Amazon overnight, like some clothes, and I could have got up here this morning and described to you and embodied what this would have looked like. This, this is, these were the priestly garments. And so there's a lot that we could talk about, but clothing in the Bible is very important. Clothing often symbolized outwardly what the wearer of the clothing ought to be inwardly in character and intention. So it's an outward description of an inward aspirational character, right? And so what you'll notice about all of this, if you read this through, if I just summarize this for you, is that all of the same fabric and materials that were used to construct the tabernacle are the same fabric and materials used to construct the garments of the priest. The same uh, fabric, the same stones, right? And again, all of this evokes the imagery of Eden, and what Moses is pointing out here, what God is instructing us to see, what he's teaching us, is that these priests were to function as embodied, living, little mini tabernacles, right? That's the description of the ideal high priest is, he is a mini tabernacle. And the reason that Moses spends an entire chapter on his clothing, on the clothing of the high priest, is not just because... Moses is like, you know, obsessed with like these sweet clothes or whatever. Like that's not what's happening here. He spends an entire chapter describing these priestly garments because they symbolize the ideal description of the heavenly high priest who represents the fullness of God's beautiful and glorious presence. Go back to chapter 28. You see right there in the beginning. You shall make, verse 2, holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. Glory and beauty are two words used to describe God himself throughout the Bible. His presence, his full presence is glorious. It's weighty. The word glory means heavy. There's a heaviness. There's a, there's a gravity to the presence of God. And the beauty of God, meaning that God's holiness is supposed to be morally and visually compelling, right? Right? We think of holiness as stuffy, buttoned up, legalistic, like do this and don't do that. Holiness in the Bible means wholeness. So the idea of holiness is supposed to be compelling or beautiful or attractive because he's showing the world a vision of wholeness in the presence of God. And you think about the stark contrast this would have been for a wandering nomadic community, right? Like 40 years in the desert. What kind of clothing were the people wearing in those days, right? I mean, it would have been very dirty clothing. It would have been very dusty, like um, 
my kids and I have been watching, uh, I don't know if you guys are into like Man vs. Wild. So they have like a kid's version now called You vs. the Wild. And so that got us going back and watching Bear Grylls hanging out in the Sahara Desert, like cutting camels open and like living inside of a camel's stomach and like all this crazy stuff. But one of the things you know about the desert, it's very, very dusty, right? I mean, so their clothing would have been very dirty, very dusty, very bloody, and very earthy. And so these priests in their garments would have stood out. And that's the whole point. God's holiness, God's vision of wholeness is glorious. And when they, when they, when they donned these robes, it was intended to convey something about the heart of God. And so you see here some of the different elements of the robe, the ephod, which is kind of the, the, the robe uh, that was underneath the garments. You see this breast piece here with the stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on his shoulders, the same thing, the, the, the tribes, the people of God, their literal names were engraved into those stones. And, and one of the things it tells us about uh, the priest is actually pretty, uh, pretty cool, that the priest was to embody the compassion of God himself. One of the things we see about the priest is they bore the burdens of the people into the presence of God. So the priests were not known by their own name. You'll see nothing in the garments that says, this is Aaron, or this is Nadab, or this is Abihu. They are known, I mean, they had, a, they had a, some kind of a, a medallion or a plate that went on top of their uh, turban that said, holy to the Lord. So they were known as belonging to God, and then the only names they bore on the garments were those of the people. And God says that's to be a reminder, to bring to remembrance to God himself the names of his people. Right? This is the compassion of the priests is that they were representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They were committed to securing in the presence of God the entrance of their brothers and sisters. The people were literally, he says, on their heart, on their shoulders. This is the ministry of the priesthood. It is bringing before God in intercession the weightiness and the burden of carrying our brothers and sisters. This is the ideal high priest. And then the paradox is that there is going to be sinful, weak human beings entering into that clothing. So the question becomes, how do ordinary sinful men enter into the holiness of the ideal kind of type of priest? And that's what chapter 29 is all about. It's about the consecration and the ordination of these weak and sinful and ordinary men. You see, the, the reality that, uh, the point that chapter 29 is making is that Aaron and his sons don't belong in the presence of God. Right? They, as sinners, don't have exemptions in the presence of God. They don't belong in the presence of God because they are unholy, and yet they gain access through these holy garments. You see, Moses is setting up this, this typology, this paradox, this pattern that's going to ultimately be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. But the point is, they don't belong. Now, let me give you kind of a modern uh, analog to this, maybe a modern analogy um, that maybe you can relate to. I don't know if you've ever been invited to a really nice party, right? Some of us from time to time get invited to these places, like a really prestigious event, 
Uh, a couple years ago, when I first moved to Broderpool, some friends of mine invited me to what's called, some of you may not be familiar with this, it's called the Meridian Kessler Home Tour. And it's like this big kind of like to-do in Broderpool. If you live here, like the who's who of Broderpool, kind of the wealthy, upper middle class, upper crust people come together, and it's over at a Catholic church here in the neighborhood, and there's dinner, and there's an auction, and there's, you know, lots of food and drink, and, and you basically go and you tour some of the nicest homes in the Meridian Kessler neighborhood, but you're not familiar with Midtown, you have kind of three neighborhoods, Broderpool proper, you have Meridian Kessler, at least this is kind of north of 46th Street, and then you have Butler Tarkington all the way over by campus. So Meridian Kessler is in the middle and kind of historically has been the, the, one of the nicer areas in, uh, in Midtown. And so um, you go to this thing and you walk through these nice homes and immediately like one of the things I noticed happening inside of me was that I realized I do not belong in this place. I'm a redneck from Kentucky, okay? Like I own like two nice jackets. I mean, I don't belong. So what you have to do is you have to dress up and pretend like you belong, right? Like, so I'm, I'm researching stuff in the neighborhood, trying to figure out what I'm going to talk about. And, oh, did you know in the 1980s this happened over? I mean, like, I'm freaking out. I don't know anything about Indianapolis. I don't know anything about this neighborhood. And so I want to prove that I belong in this inner circle of elites in uh, Marini Kessler, why? Because I'm afraid that I'm going to be exposed, not for the person that I'm not, but for the person that I actually am, a fraud, an outsider, completely and utterly incompetent and not belonging in a place like this, right? And there's this sense that, and, and you feel it when you move into broader and you're not from the city, that you're an outsider. Like some of you guys feel like that. You feel culturally like an outsider. You feel like you don't belong. And so we spend so much time dressing up and, 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 and researching and trying to figure out what does it look like to get in on the inside. That's a little bit of a taste of what's happening here in this passage. They don't belong, and so they have to dress up in order to play act, have this persona that fulfills a certain role. So how do unholy people enter into the holiness of God's presence. Let me give you another analogy. Um, deep sea diving. So I've never been deep sea, deep sea diving. But it's fascinating to think about um, the idea of deep sea diving. Uh, prior to the 18th century, people could not swim to depths basically below about 40 feet. So about 40 feet that your body begins to, because of the pressure of the gases in the depths of the ocean, you have all kinds of bad things that can happen if you start to swim beneath 40 feet. Basically, it's, it's death, right? Like it's death or serious decompression sickness. Like literally the pressure of the ocean begins to crush your body and you cannot go down beneath 40 feet without some kind of artificial suit or covering to get you into that intense presence. 1715, there was a British inventor who constructed the very first diving suit. The first diving suit was essentially a six-foot wooden barrel with armholes and a glass viewing port. And so they would lower this guy down, and I think it was about a depth of 50 to 60 feet. And it was ingenious because at that time, there were all these shipwrecks about 50 to 60 feet underneath the ocean that had tons of silver and gold. And so he invented this as a way to be able to get rich. And so he was able to go down into these, these, uh, these big shipwrecks and reclaim all of this lost silver. Now, 
Uh, all this time later, we have an, a way to get even deeper into the ocean with, with what, these special suits called atmospheric diving suits. Atmospheric diving suits now allow people to go down as far as 2,300 feet under the ocean without being crushed. There's an analogy here for entering the presence of God. It is as impossible to enter the presence of God as it is to get to the depths of the ocean without a protective suit. The intensity, the pressure of God's holiness will crush you without the proper protections. That's why the priests needed to be consecrated. That's why they needed to be ordained. Notice the ordination happens seven days. Again, this is all hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1. The idea of seven days is the idea of completeness. There's a completeness to the consecration. There's a completeness to the ordination. They had their hands full, so to speak, with the, the work of being priests. They had to be washed. You'll see that in chapters 30 and 31. Head to toe, to enter the presence of God, you had to be washed. There could be no purity, impurities or defilements in the presence of God. They had to don then the priestly garments. They had to offer this threefold pattern of sacrifices, which involved basically lots of blood being spattered everywhere, right? Lots of bulls and goats and lambs being sacrificed. This idea here God is teaching is that in order to enter the presence of God as unholy people, something innocent must die. That's the pattern that's being set up here. That's the seriousness with which God takes his holiness. They were anointed, right? That The sacrifices were threefold. One, there was the sin offering, which was offered by laying their hands on the head of a bull, symbolizing atonement, or the covering of sin for the priests themselves. Then there was the burnt offering, which is a ram, and that symbolized complete devotion to God. And then there was the wave offering last, which was another ram, and that symbolized a peaceful fellowship being, uh, being achieved between both God and one another. And then they had this job description that was kind of ongoing beyond their consecration and ordination, where they were expected to basically do two things— Uh, every day, day and night, right? There's perpetual things that had to happen every day. One, keep the lamps burning. You see that back in chapter 27. Keep the lampstand hot, right? The lampstand, remember, represents the tree of life in Genesis. So the, the idea here is keep reminding the people that the presence of God is living and active in this place. God's light, God's holiness is here. The second thing was then to offer sacrifices daily, day and night, that there would always be a fire burning. There would always be an aroma being lifted up to God. What we see here is that in the midst of sin, in the midst of unholiness, in the midst of brokenness, we see the triumph of grace. God anticipated the people's need. And we see by this constant offering of sacrifice that God knew that the people were broken and they needed forgiveness. And so for everybody who talks about the Old Testament being about law and being about legalism and being about rules, we see right in the center of the tabernacle an opportunity every day for mercy and grace. Once a year, the priests would go in and they would make a, a major sacrifice, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which was the day they would enter into the most holy place 
and they would throw incense out while the people outside waited in silence. There was the altar of incense right before you entered into the most holy place. And we don't exactly know what that was about, but a lot of people, a lot of scholars speculate that what they would do is they would take the incense and they would throw it up. And the idea was that they did not want to see the divine presence because it would kill them. And so it created a barrier, a smoke barrier between them and the presence of God. I mean, this is how holy and intense the presence of God is. Remember, right over the mercy seat, right over the atonement cover, was the hot spot of God's presence. That's where God would speak directly to his people. So we see the significance here of the priesthood. Having access to God's presence is not a simple thing. It involved a lot of death and a lot of sacrifice. So fast forward then uh, through the rest of the story, we know that ultimately this system of the priesthood becomes dysfunctional. I mean, it's not just a couple chapters later. So if you're reading the Bible, Exodus and Leviticus go together like in an anthology, right? So where Exodus ends, Leviticus picks up and then describes the rest of what happens with the priesthood. And so it's an interesting book. If you've never read the book of Leviticus, I want to encourage you to read it because it begins to show how this system of the priesthood over time breaks down and becomes dysfunctional. What basically happens over the next couple hundred years is that the priests begin to confuse their holy clothing with holy character. They think that they're holy men because they dress up and put on holy clothes. In the same way that my kids, you know, next week or whatever, and again, don't, you know, send me emails, don't hate, but we're going to go out and do Halloween. So some of you are, you know, pro-Halloween, some of you are not. We're going to dress up in costumes, and we're going to go out and we're going to pretend to be Minecraft characters. We're going to pretend to be princesses and Mario and Luigi and whatever else my kids, I think it's uh, Mary Poppins now this year, it's come back into vogue again. Uh, We're going to pretend to be Mary Poppins. But like we're no more those characters because we're putting on the clothes than they were holy by putting on the holy clothing. And by the time that Jesus shows up, he begins to call out this hypocrisy. He says, just because you're wearing holy garments doesn't mean you reflect God's vision of wholeness. Matter of fact, you've corrupted the priesthood. We see the golden calf incident where Aaron, the the high priest, leads God's people away from the holiness of God and tries to set up an alternative priesthood. We see uh, them offer unauthorized fire, which is specifically condemned here in uh, chapter 31. We see massive abuse of power throughout the rest of the prophetic literature. If you read Amos and you read books like that, you're going to see them calling out the priests specifically for using their power to grind the faces of the poor. People commit adultery. They go, go after other gods, and eventually God sends them into exile. And we see in the rest of the Old Testament this reversal of the book of Exodus. What God is doing here gets undone, and the people end up back in slavery. But then Jesus shows up in the New Testament. And again, we said everything in the temple, everything in the tabernacle was designed to point beyond itself. And so we see in the life of Jesus the fulfillment of the ideal high priest, right? That's one of the main points here in this passage is that this system was never designed to be final. It was a temporary measure designed to lead people and to teach them about the holiness of God and how to have their sins forgiven and how to live as full and free human beings who are worshiping God and loving their neighbors as themselves. And so Jesus comes as the fulfillment of this great high priest who gives us access to the presence of God. Remember John chapter 1, we read this last week, he shows up 
and it says that Jesus came and he dwelt among his people. That word dwell is the word for tabernacle. He literally came and tabernacled among God's people, and he showed them, those same words there, the beauty and the glory of the presence of God. He embodied the presence of God in the fullness of God's manifest glory. He was the hot spot, the mercy seat of God's presence. He was the overlap between the realm of heaven and the realm of earth. He was anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Like all of these words and phrases that you read throughout the Gospels, they're not accidental. They're put there to remind us that Jesus came as the great high priest. He was the lamb who was offered up as a sin offering for the entire world. Jesus was a bridge between God and man. In his death and resurrection, he entered into the most holy place, the Bible says, and he tore the curtain in two that protected us from the intensity of God's holy presence. And then he ascends in his resurrection to the right hand of the Father, never to offer sacrifices again. Shop closed. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes this. And these, uh, if we could show that next slide. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, as a payment for everyone, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The writer of Hebrews, in describing the work of Jesus as our high priest, which is one of the main points of the book of Hebrews, he's, he's saying this whole tabernacle system, it was just a shadow. It was just a pattern. It was just a type. But there's a deeper substance and reality that it's pointing us towards as the people of God. Hebrews chapter 9, it goes on to talk about that. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, talking about the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus is the great high priest. He comes with the mercy of God. He comes with the presence of God. He comes embodying that paradox, God drawing near, but having to offer a divine sacrifice, blood of the innocent one shed so that we could be sprinkled clean and now have access eternally to the most holy place, to the very presence of God. Jesus comes and restores Eden. And then he deposits that not into a, a piece of land in the Middle East. He deposits that into the hearts of his people. And so we see, finally, the church as a kingdom of priests. Now that we are in Christ, we are connected to Jesus, we are restored back to communion with him. The Bible says you now are the holy priesthood. We've come full circle now back. So remember, the narrowing in on Jesus is the one who fulfills and the widening back out of the promises to the people of God as they live out the mission of God in the world now. We've come full circle back to Exodus 19. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are God's beloved 
children. We now have access to the presence of God. And here's the key. Only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? Jesus, in this sense, you could say, is like that, that, that atmospheric diving suit. Now, this is really cheesy, and, and, and if you take it the wrong way, it could border on idolatry. But what I'm saying is we only get access to the depths of God's presence by having a protective suit. Jesus is now the protective suit that we can wear, that we put on. Literally, that's the language of the New Testament. We put this on as the robes of righteousness to now enter into the depths of the presence of God. That's what it means to be in Christ. You are in that protection. You are covered. You have been washed clean, right? First Peter chapter 2 says this. As you come to him, talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, now drawing back on the language of Exodus and Genesis, stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy, whole priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 13 says it like this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Uh, hang on, wrong, wrong passage. Let me read it. Hebrews chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you can turn there while I'm turning there. Verse 15, through, through him then let us continually offer up as priests, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We are now the priesthood. We are now the priesthood, a kingdom of priests. And just like the priests in the Old Testament, we now enter into the holiness of God to perform priestly duties. Namely, the New Testament says, to offer up what they call, the writers of the New Testament call, spiritual sacrifices. What does it mean to offer up spiritual sacrifices? Hebrews 13 tells us right? There are two primary sacrifices that we offer up on behalf of the world. The first one is praise, or what we'll call communion. The second one is compassion, or serving the weak and the poor and the needy. This is the two things we see. Offering up our sacrifices and our priestly duties is after the pattern of what we see there in Exodus chapters 28 through 31. The first thing is offering up sacrifice of praise. You see this throughout the book of Psalms. Offer up a sacrifice of praise. In other words, live into your communion with God. You have been brought into the presence of God because of Jesus. You no longer, here's the key, you no longer have to live as an outsider. You see, we have this sense as human beings that we're on the outside, that we don't belong in the various human circles and relationships that we tend to run in. And so we tend to live our lives feeling marginalized. And some of us are in different ways very much, and all of us in different ways, are very much marginalized and excluded and alienated from certain circles that we see as inside, right? And so we spend our lives either trying to get into those circles or mocking and scorning those circles and acting as if we don't want to get inside in the first place, which is really just another way of saying, I wish I was inside the circle. And so 
We feel this way. We feel this way psychologically, right? We feel this way politically. We feel this way economically. But the, the ultimate truth the Bible says, it's not that those things aren't true. It's just that it's not the core of the problem. The core of the problem is spiritual. The core of the problem has to do with our soul. We've been put out of the presence of God. We've been banished from Eden, and we are longing since the fall to try to get back to Eden, and yet we find the way blocked. And so our whole experience as outsiders is an echo of that longing that we have for communion with God, for intimacy with God. Like, I don't care how much you change social structures. I don't care how much you change things in the world. The reality is, if you're not brought back into the presence of God, you will always feel like an outsider. And it's not to say we shouldn't work. We just spent a whole series talking about working to change social structures. But the reality is, these feelings of exclusion and alienation at the core have to do with a desire for communion. No matter how high you climb on the social ladder, you will always feel like an outsider. Ask people who are, quote-unquote, at the top. Read the stories. Everyone feels that way. And so what, what, what Jesus is doing here is opening up a way for us to come into the ultimate insider club, right? Into the ultimate prestigious place, right? The place, better than Meridian Kessler home tour, better than going into the governor or governor's mansion or the president's White House or whatever. The place of all places. We have been washed like the priests from our sins. We have been clothed in the righteousness of God. We have been anointed by the Holy Spirit and welcomed into and empowered for service in the name of Jesus. We have been saved by the blood of Jesus, sprinkled clean. We have access to communion with God. In Zechariah 3, the prophet Zechariah has this vision. And it's really interesting. It's of Joshua, the high priest. And Joshua, the high priest, is standing before God in these filthy robes, literally covered with excrement. Dirty, filthy, smelly robes. And Zechariah is shocked because the high priest would never be covered in garments like this. And Satan is standing, the evil one is standing around Joshua, accusing him, lobbing all of these accusations at him. You don't belong. You're not worthy. Get out of the presence of God. And the angel of the Lord speaks up and he says, take off his filthy clothes. Take away his sin and put rich garments in a clean turban on him. And then he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And we see this as a picture of what it means for every Christian to know communion with God. You were filthy because of your sin, because of your unholiness, because of your alienation from God. And you feel these accusations from the evil one. You don't belong. And it's actually true. Like, that's the part that's offensive for all of us. It's actually true. We don't belong in the presence of God. But God takes off our filthy garments, and he puts the high priest's garments on us. He puts the priestly garments on us, and he says, now, because of Jesus, because you're in Christ, you now belong. You're now free to praise God. You're now free to enter into communion with God, deep fellowship with God, and thus, you should be a different kind of person. Like, the spirit of a priest is the spirit of praise. It's not the spirit of defensiveness. Like, it should make you less touchy. It should make you less defensive. It should make you less self-critical. It should make you less critical of others. 
It should make you less bitter towards other people. It should lead you to a place where you show up at church and you don't need to be acknowledged by other people. You're not worried about your status. You're not worried about who didn't look you in the eye or who didn't speak to you or who didn't say such and such to you, who didn't shake your hand and who snubbed you. I mean, let's be honest, like all of that's happening at church. Like in the gallery, this is like this little mini, like, you know, multiple rings, like layers of rings and kind of like the who's who are kind of talking and everybody's kind of like trying to figure out where they belong. Like we're doing all that in church. We do that in missional communities. That's why some of us are terrified to show up at a house group or a house church or a missional community. We feel like we don't belong. And so we get defensive. We keep records and scores. Well, I remember three years ago when they didn't look at me and they must not like me. And so therefore I'm going to treat them a certain kind of way. It should make us more grateful. It should make us more generous in spirit. It should make us more forgiving. And it should make us more others focused because I have nothing to prove. I belong. I belong in the presence of God. And therefore, I belong here. Even if I don't feel that I do, I belong. I now have confidence to enter into the most holy place. So surely, surely I can enter into the church with a little bit more confidence because God has given me the approval and the belonging that my heart yearns for. Sacrifice of praise and the sacrifice of compassion. That frees me up then to serve the weak. That frees me up to serve the poor, to serve the needy. Communion with God gave the priests access to a strength that then allowed them to represent their brothers and sisters before the presence of God, to care, to serve, to come alongside, to identify with, to lay down their lives for their brothers and sisters. This is the ministry of a priest. It is compassionate intercession, right? Prayer, like before God, praying and bringing brothers and sisters, bringing our community, bringing lost folks before the Lord, praying for them, reminding God, begging God to intervene in their lives. It is the ministry of intercession that's full of compassion, right? Like I am them and they are me. I am a sinner as much as they are. I need the grace of God probably more than they do. It's intercession and it's intervention. We intervene into the needs of our community. We throw ourselves into those practical places where people need priests. And we work, and we labor, and we do good, and we share what we have, recognizing that all of it belongs to our Father. So I'm just going to pray for us. We're going to close and go to communion. I want to pray for us. I want to pray that we might see this as our calling. Maybe you're here, 